welcome to the first ever episode of Abortion is Essential, interviews with reproductive freedom champions. In this podcast, I look forward to sitting down with some of the most amazing guests, ranging from abortion and reproductive freedom advocates, abortion providers, reproductive freedom champions in the legislature, and more, to have incredible and informative conversations about the work they do to ensure abortion access, combat abortion restrictions, educate about reproductive freedom, and protect abortion as essential health care for all. Today, our first guest on the podcast is someone who I've had the pleasure of working for as her intern these past few months. She has been an incredible mentor and has taught me so much about what it means to advocate for reproductive rights. Please welcome our first guest, Erin May Quaid. As a quick introduction, Erin is the current advocacy director for Gender Justice, a nonprofit law firm that works on issues of gender equity, and she is also the campaign manager for the Unrestrict Minnesota Coalition. Unrestrict Minnesota is a community-supported public awareness campaign that aims to educate and motivate Minnesotans to stay informed about their rights and access to abortion care in the state. This coalition is an intersectional group of around 25 community organizations. Erin is also a former Minnesota state representative who was first elected to the Minnesota House of Representatives in 2016. In June 2018, Representative Erin May Quaid became the first LGBTQ person and among the youngest to be endorsed as the DFL candidate for Lieutenant Governor. She is a longtime advocate for gender equity issues, and it is a pleasure to have the opportunity to interview her today regarding topics of trap laws and abortion restrictions, the current attacks on abortion in Minnesota, and what the public can do to help, and the framework of choice as compared to reproductive justice. Erin is calling in via Zoom, so the sound quality may differ between my voice and hers. But without further ado, we'll jump right into the interview with Erin May Quaid. So my first question is, what are the current abortion laws in Minnesota? And can you give an overview of what a trap law is and how they restrict access to abortion in Minnesota? Sure. So, um... The laws I'll talk about, I mean, they're not all of the laws related to abortion, but they are the ones that, um, you know, put up the most barriers for people accessing abortion care. Um, so, and, and not each of these provisions is its own individual law. Some of them are tucked into the same law together. So we have a, a mandate that doctors have to provide medically irrelevant um, and politically motivated advice information to patients, include med- including medically inaccurate in information. So we, um, doctors have to suggest a false link between breast cancer and abortion. Um, and I always say, um, and sometimes the script is like, you know, there's been studies have shown there's no link between breast cancer and abortion. And I always say like, if every time you got your haircut, your stylist assured you, your arm was not going to fall off. How often would you have to hear that before you were like, wait, is my <laughs> arm, like, why would you bring that up? Of course it's not going to fall off. Right. Um, and then doctors also have to um, direct patients to materials that are found on a state website that a study by Rutgers found is like one third, all of the information is just like one third medically inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a mandate that um, 
that uh, people have to make a medically unnecessary appointment for care. It's an extra appointment. This sets up the 24-hour waiting period um, where you hear the medically inaccurate biased script. We have a law that prevents advanced practice clinicians from prescribing medication abortion or providing the procedure earlier in pregnancy. Um, certainly, advanced practice clinicians uh, can provide abortion care, especially when it's medication abortion, which is just mm-hmm. two pills, or qualified to dispense two pills. Um, and advanced practice clinicians do provide abortion care in other states like Montana and Vermont. And so um, I think it's like 16 other states. So this is just a specific ban on that for political. It's to shrink the number of people who can provide abortion care. Um, there's a mandate that doctors provide incredibly detailed information about each patient to the state commissioner of health. So their age, race, state, city, county of residence, how many kids they've had, how many abortions they've had, how many marriages they've had, how much money they make, their marital status, why they're having the abortion, how they paid for the abortion, the type of abortion, where their doctor is providing the abortion care, the outcome of the abortion, if they cremated or buried uh, the fetal tissue, which is another law that uh, mandates that fetal tissue be cremated or buried, regardless of the beliefs of the person. Um, and on and on and on. And this this information is published on July 1st every year in a public report. So um, it's data surveillance. This is, you know, doctors provide or gather information that they need from patients. And this is mandated by the state. And it's called data surveillance. It's, it's really harmful. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a mandate that doctors, this is part of that script, have to talk about a man's obligation to pay child support before the patient's allowed to have an abortion. And that is I mean, so stupid, number one. Doctors, this is nothing that they know any more information other than the script. Um, It presumes that there is a man in the relationship. So for a single person or Mm -hmm. a lesbian like myself, right, there is no man in the relationship. There would be no one who would be required to pay child support. Um, And it also presumes that the if there is a male partner, that they're not there with them or that they weren't part of this decision or that the decision is solely based on, um, you know, it's right. It's like playing into stereotypes about, quote, unquote, those people who have abortions. When, by the way, we know that of abortions are already parents. Anyway, and then there's a mandate that um, minors have to notify both of their parents before they can have an abortion, even if the minor has an abusive relationship or no relationship with one or both of their parents. And um, if they can't notify or won't notify both of their parents, they can go before a judge, it's called judicial bypass, and um, the judge can decide if the minor is mature enough or not to have an abortion. And if the judge says they're not mature enough to have an abortion, they can force them to have a child. Um, and that is wild. And then there's also a 48-hour waiting period for minors because of that. Could you possibly give a definition of what a trap law is specifically and how they work to restrict access to abortion? So a trap law is a targeted regulation of an abortion provider. And the way that trap laws work, this is the second part of your question, (laughs) is they are meant to, um, they're meant because it's not quote unquote, like politically, uh, savvy to punish the people who have abortions. And so, um, anti-abortion politicians go after the providers, right? Because if you can, um, harass, dox, murder the providers, you can scare them out of giving, providing the procedure. They've Mm -hmm. already, um, politicize this issue so much that abortion happens like in a different clinic than primary care clinic, even though abortion care is primary care, right? And so, um, so they target abortion providers and clinics for these regulations with the hopes of just pushing them out of business, or I guess business, you know, out of the 
the field of providing this care, right? Too expensive to run a clinic, too dangerous to run a clinic. Um, they target, you know, you can't train people on how to provide abortion care. So if you can't learn how to do the procedure, you can't safely go to work. Um, you can't like afford to, you know, do all of the arbitrary, like widen the hallways or carry medication that no one ever needs and update it every year, right? That's the, the point of trap laws. Yeah, thank you. So my second question is um, kind of bringing it to the present. Can you provide an overview of the current attacks that anti-abortion lawmakers have been attempting in Minnesota um, currently or presently? Yeah, so, you know, there have been, since 1995, when abortion, um, when the Minnesota Supreme Court ruled that in Minnesota we have broader constitutional protections for abortion rights than the United States Constitution provides. Um, since that time, right, when we've had those strong constitutional protections, more than 400 anti-abortion bills have been introduced in the state legislature to ban abortion, to punish people who have abortions, to punish people who provide abortion care, to defund the University of Minnesota for teaching doctors how to provide abortion care. Um, to, you know, I mean, just some of the most weird, wild ways that you could target uh, abortion. Um, a constitutional amendment to say that the Constitution does not provide a right to access abortion care. So, um, so this year, I mean, in the last few years, I think the Overton window shifted a lot because even a few years ago when all of these states were signing abortion bans into law, there was like widespread outrage and that is still happening at a rapid pace. This has been the worst year um, in over a decade for abortion, well, anti-abortion restrictions, I should say. Um, I think in three days last week, half, almost half of the restrictions were passed from like the 26th of April to the 29th. And we're like collectively like, oh, well, what do you expect? That's what, you know, anti-abortion politicians do. But um, so, you know, in Minnesota, we certainly haven't been immune. Michelle Benson, who's a state senator mm -hmm. who um, has authored abortion bans and is the chair of the Health and Human Services Committee and has heard her own abortion ban as a bill that is a trap law. It's a targeted regulation of an abortion provider and it's to create um, like some really specific licensing requirements for abortion for clinics that provide abortion care. Um, but it should be noted that primary care clinics in the state of Minnesota are not licensed as primary care clinics. They're the people who provide care in those clinics are licensed. And so they have licensing criteria and facility, and we do have facility criteria, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, it's got to be clean and blah, 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 blah. But we don't like license a mammogram center. We don't license an right. eye care clinic, or eye care, right? We, we license the people who provide. And so we don't need specific licensing for abortion clinics because they are already licensed the same way all primary care clinics are licensed. Um, or, you know, for another example, most clinics that provide abortion care also provide um, STI screening and mm -hmm. preventative health care, right? So clinics that do all those things and don't provide abortion care, they don't have a specific licensing set of requirements, <laughs> right? So it, it is to target abortion providers and to target um, abortion specifically and then do so under a very like, what? It's just licensing, you know, because it's a little bit less, um, it's a little more wonky, right? Mm -hmm. We don't typically know how we license clinics or not in the state of Minnesota. Anyway, so that's what's currently happening right now. Yeah, that's so like insidious, <laughs> I guess is a good thing. So are there any action items that like the general public or, or um, 
like students I guess can do to support unrestrict Minnesota and support like the work that like the reproductive champions are doing in like the legislature yeah so I mean there's a bunch of things the first so there's like there's time money and effort so Mm -hmm. time um you can volunteer we do volunteer nights with unrestricted Minnesota. We call people in districts who have legislators that are really crucial to, you know, a committee or to the legislature. Um, and we let people know that they have town halls coming up for their legislators and we help people, you know, craft questions and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, money, right? This work, we, we have people who get paid a living wage to do this work. And so money is always helpful. We're new. We're, we've mm-hmm. only been around for years. So uh, money is always helpful. And then, um, effort so people can do things as simple as sharing information about what's happening um the gap the knowledge gap about what's going on is so big that this is one of those instances where sharing something on social media is doing something and mm-hmm. giving it visibility and attention that it's normally not getting um so signing up for the unrestricted email list we send out action alerts follow us on social media um we're like really cool on instagram and <laughs> and uh, and twitter that's where I like to be. Um, so yeah, follow us on the social medias and share our stuff. And that, that too is, is doing something. It's not the only thing, but it is part of it. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask, um, so we often talk about reproductive rights using the language of um, like reproductive choice. Um, but we uh, like, I kind of wanted to get at who gets to have reproductive choice in Minnesota and how that is impacted by um, different identities such as race, class, um, gender, sexual orientation, and who um, how that impacts people's rights and access to abortion services. Yeah, so I mean, the first thing I'll say is, you know, oftentimes we frame just conversations about abortion rights as like a choice, right? Mm-hmm. So I just want to open it up a little bit more to um, who has the ability to make decisions because placing abortion as an equal and opposite choice to, you know, caring to term and giving birth is just not real. And so when you brought in it even more to think about who has the ability to make decisions about their own reproductive destiny, it's people who have um, money, people who have, who are like, benefit from quote-unquote the norms of society right so Mm -hmm. you said sexual orientation gender identity gender expression um you know reproductive justice an organizing framework that was started by black women was created by black women um is defined as four primary principles the right to have a child the right to not have a child the right to raise children you choose to have in safe and sustainable communities and then gender freedom and bodily autonomy for all human beings and so if you think about you know the right not to have a child certainly includes access to abortion care, but it also includes access to information about your own body. So you know Mm -hmm. how to not get pregnant. It includes access to contraception. Um, The right to have a child means we should have the ability to decide to have children and have that supported, right? And so you think about um, infertility rates are going up. It's very expensive for people to uh, get pregnant. And, you know, it's even, it's expensive if you don't have semen and a uterus, both of which are functioning, Mm -hmm. you know, at levels that need to be. So let's say you're single and you'd like to have a child. Let's say that you have two uteruses in a relationship. You have two, um, you have semen producing people in a relationship or you have semen producing people with no swimmers in it, right? Mm -hmm. Like there are a whole bunch of ways that people who want to have children can't have children and money, not having money to like 
overcome that locks them out of parenthood. Mm-hmm. And so um, that is a problem. There are still 17 states in this country where um, transgender people have to be sterilized in order to change their you know, birth certificate and that kind of stuff. And so that also takes away people's own ability to decide whether or not to have children. So, um, you know, reproductive destiny is linked to the conditions in our communities, which means, um, you know, people who are affected by racism and sexism and, you know, homophobia and transphobia and, um, you know, the patriarchy and the caste system, um, racial caste system and the, uh, you know, economic caste system are locked out of making decisions about their own reproductive destiny. And then you think about, you know, Dante's right, Dante Wright's mother. She chose to have children and then they couldn't live in a community without violence mm-hmm. from the state. Um, or you think about um, people who live near garbage burners and have asthma or, you know, like that also takes away people's ability to decide um, and have that bodily autonomy. So all linked together. And it's why we work at Unrestrict Minnesota to de-silo the fight for abortion rights and reproductive health care from the broader movement for justice is because they're all deeply tied together. And um, it's remarkable that, you know, anti-abortion people, the anti-abortion movement have been able to section abortion care off from, you know, primary care. But even within the more progressive mm-hmm. movement, we still have allowed abortion rights to be sectioned off as like those people do that over there. It's a third rail. We shouldn't talk about it. Right. So we still do that, too. And and so unsiloing it is, is really important. Yeah. For the final question, I was just wondering if you could touch a little bit on oppression and power, specifically the intersections between white supremacy and the anti-abortion extremism movement. Sure. So the anti-abortion movement, a lot of people think of, you know, the timeline of like Roe v. Wade happened and then people like, no, that's bad. And they organized the anti-abortion movement. That's not Mm -hmm. what happened. The anti-abortion movement. So the first people to sign, you know, abortion laws, like access to abortion care and making that legal were uh, Republicans. It was Ronald Reagan, who was the governor of California before he was president, who signed some of the first abortion rights laws into place. Um, you know, the Southern Baptist Conference, you can go back and find statements of their, you know, supporting a person's, I mean, they would use gendered language, a woman's ability to decide to have an abortion. But um, this was not a political issue or politicized issue, and it was not a quote unquote religious issue until the desegregation of public schools, particularly in the South, which happened a lot later than Brown v. Board of Education, which is like 55. Um, so we're talking like the 70s here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, late 70s. And um, at the time, a Republican uh, strategist was trying to figure out how to galvanize racist white evangelical voters in the South into an organized voting bloc. And at the time, the strategist was like, well, we can't say it's like opposition to desegregating schools. Like that's too racist. And so um, they found that abortion was actually the perfect issue to organize people around. And so the anti-abortion movement was actually started explicitly on purpose to galvanize people who opposed desegregating Mm -hmm. schools. So it was already started from a white supremacist um, thing, right? It was was organize those people, right? And then you also think about, you also think about um, 
like the the idea that the government gets to tell people when and where they can give birth or not give birth and that the government is in control of, of our reproductive health decisions, that is a deeply white supremacist idea that has its roots all the way back to ensla- enslavement, right? Mm-hmm. And um, the gynecological field actually was started by a, a white man who did experiments and surgeries on enslaved black women without their permission and without anesthesia. And so, um, which is torture. And so like even the field itself has always been tied to that, which is part of the reason the reproductive justice movement centers race equity um, and liberation so closely is because it like the, the field that gives us abortion care um, was started from, you know, experiments and surgeries on enslaved black people. So anyway, um, the idea of the government being in control of those decisions is also deeply tied to white supremacy. So mm-hmm. we shouldn't be surprised then that at the Capitol insurrection was a noted clinic bomber, right? A guy who had bombed Planned Parenthood. And you would see in some of the reproductive rights spaces um, as they were kind of publicizing who was at the insurrection, who was getting arrested, people like, oh, yep, that's the person who's always outside our clinic. That's mm-hmm. the guy who's out, you know, if you, if you feel that it's okay to stand outside a clinic and harass the people who are going in there to get care, um, one, that's very, there's a lot of misogyny that is tied into that, um, which is also rooted in white supremacy. Um, but there's the other part I'll add to is that even though proportionally people of color access abortion care at higher rates, numerically white people access abortion care at higher rates. Or I mean, there are more white people who have abortions than people of color because you know that's how the numbers shake out. And the fundamental belief of white supremacists and white nationalists is that white women and people with uteruses, their job is to populate this country with white children. Mm -hmm. And so they also see it and they've been very explicit. State Senator Baxley in Florida has talked about like, well, if you if you have, um, you know, people coming to this country who do believe in having children and don't want to assimilate them, we're at a tipping point where, you know, basically saying white people are having abortions and people of color are not. And we're going to get to a place where we don't have any more white people. Mm -hmm. Right. It's the it's the great replacement myth uh, that is central to white nationalism and white supremacy. Um, and it's reminiscent of the 14 words of the Nazis. We must secure the existence of blah, 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 blah. Um, so anyway, so it's all very tied together. The Venn diagram of anti-abortion extremists and white supremacists is a circle, mm-hmm. I often say. Thank you so much, Erin. That was all the questions that I had for us to talk about today. I really appreciate you being the first guest on this new podcast, Abortion is Essential, Interviews with Reproductive Freedom Champions. Just to close out this wonderful first episode, I wanted to say a huge thank you to Erin May Quaid for allowing me to interview her and for always being such an incredible source of knowledge. To support Unrestrict Minnesota in their work to protect access to abortion and to educate Minnesotans about reproductive rights, you can find them at UnrestrictMN on Instagram and Twitter. And you can donate and support their work via their website, unrestrictmn.org. I also wanted to say a huge thank you to my introduction to social justice professor, Jen Witt, and my classmates, who encouraged me and supported me in creating this podcast episode as part of my final action plan for the course. Thank you for listening to the first podcast episode of Abortion is Essential, interviews with reproductive freedom champions. This has been your host, Samantha Holtz. Talk to you next episode. Bye.